to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I am joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. How are you? I'm just glad to be talking about movies with my friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, directors are ingrates. At least that's the vibe you might get. Uh, coming from certain corners of the uh, public and from film Twitter as Christopher Nolan, Denis Villeneuve, question mark, uh, and Judd Apatow go on the warpath against Warner Brothers and AT&T for unilaterally deciding to release their films on HBO Max and in theaters simultaneously rather than in theaters alone. In an op-ed for Variety, Villeneuve wrote that he learned of the decision in the news, which is just absolutely amazing. Uh, appearing on NPR's All Things Considered, Christopher Nolan warned of the deleterious effects this would have on union members. Quote, the grips, the electricians who depend on, you know, IA and IA residuals for pension and health care. Uh, I'm talking about SAG. That's why the residual structure is in place. End quote. Judd Apatow said, quote, it's the type of disrespect that you hear about in the history of show business. End quote. Um, so are these directors, you know, are they just being kind of whiny? After all, consumers are demanding to be able to watch things at home on TV, having decided that theaters, where literally zero COVID transmissions have been confirmed to have happened literally anywhere in the world, are unsafe. Uh, and baby always gets its bottle, right? That's how it works. Uh, and the studios, you know, they should get some say here, right? After all, they've, they're have they the ones who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on these and other films. They've given Christopher Nolan, you know, literally something like $600 million over the years to to pursue his passion projects. Um, uh, you know, they gave Denis Villeneuve uh, $200 million to make sure that the spice flows. They should have some say in this, right? Alyssa, should directors just shut their dang mouths? And that Warner Brothers and AT&T destroyed the theatrical model. No, um, I think, first of all, the way that Warner's handled this was obviously done primarily in a way that would prevent the news from leaking in the media before they wanted it to come out. But it would have been far better for the news to leak in the media as they were having a series of conversations with the people who make their movies so that they would not be blindsided and you know, in a position where they felt like they were being treated as completely disposable. Like, yes, the studios have the money, but the directors have the talent and the directors are the people who the actors want to work with. Like nobody is like Timothy Chalamet is not super excited to go work with AT&T. Right. I mean, and I thought one thing that Villeneuve really emphasized in his op-ed for Variety is that this is a business that is built on relationships and trust. Um, it is not a matter of stamping out widgets in a factory. It is almost entirely relationship driven. Yes, there's data and box office analysis and everything else, but making a movie is a matter of getting together dozens or hundreds of people, keeping them from going completely bananas at each other and getting them to produce at the highest level, you know, for over long shoots, over publicity tours. And when you blow up that trust, you make it difficult to do your core business. Um, but I think there are sort of two core disputes here. One is about business model and whether or not a model that is more balanced towards streaming, although perhaps with some theatrical revenue included, continues to produce the kind of movies that the studios think that they make money off of. The second is whether a movie as seen in a theater is a distinct form of art from a random thing that you watch on your television at home. And I think that 
the directors are as upset as they are both for reasons of economics. I mean, and I think it's absolutely true that there are going to be people who are really hurt by these decisions um, and that there are just a lot of down the line consequences that are not part of the general discussion. I had not realized until this happened, for example, that um, there is a formula in place that uses box office revenue to determine um, what TV syndication deals for movies look like. So there are just a lot of downstream consequences here. But people like Villeneuve believe that there is something distinct about seeing in a, a movie in a theater with other people. He says in his op-ed, our movie's image and sound were meticulously designed to be seen in theaters. And folks like him and Christopher Nolan fundamentally believe that watching something on your television at home and watching it in theaters, which with you know an image and sound that have been optimized for that, that they're not substitute goods. And AT&T and Warner Brothers clearly believe that they're close enough. And that's just a really fundamental disagreement. And if Warner Brothers' brand in part was that we actually care about artistry and the cinematic experience, and then they've just gone, nah, we don't care about all of that. That's a really damaging thing for them. Yeah, I Peter, we're going to talk about sound design and the importance thereof in in a moment when we get to uh, sound of metal which we're reviewing this week um but i i do think that there is uh you know there there's a real big issue not just i mean not just from the uh from the technical audio visual side of things but the the economic side of things i mean look the you cannot you cannot replace the money that theatrical brings in via streaming um certainly not yet possibly not ever uh, and when you make less money, you have less money to give to the people that Christopher Nolan mentioned, you know, the the IATSE members, the 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 SAG members. Um, this is to say nothing of you know, the money directors make, you know, uh, the, there, there are all sorts of unintended economic consequences here. And uh, it's it's to unilaterally do something like this strikes me as not just a. Uh, a, a form of artistic warfare in a way, but a form of economic warfare. Well, there's certainly economic consequences here. Um, look, there's always a power struggle in Hollywood between art and commerce. Um, it is in many ways, uh, certainly for much, for much of the last hundred years, it is the biggest kind of uh, artistic slash economic enterprise in the world, right? I mean, where the, the place where sort of the, the big ambitions of businessmen and the biggest ambitions of artists collide um, and come together and need to work together. Um, I think Warner Brothers handled this in a way that was bound to generate pushback. They didn't tell people. On the other hand, it's also kind of hard to imagine how they could have told people in a way that wasn't guaranteed to leak long before they wanted this to get out there. And so I think probably I, I have no obvi obviously have no inside information. But my suspicion here is they felt like they wanted to make an announcement. Uh, they wanted to get it out before Christmas, try to get HBO Max uh, signups. And they also couldn't figure out a way to do this in a period of time where it wasn't going to come out at some point anyway. So they just had to let people know uh, publicly and then go to their partners and talk afterwards. Um, I think folks like Vianu uh, and Christopher Nolan have power. They are going to exert that power in the future. My suspicion is that we are going to see contractual obligations of more traditional theatrical releases. But I also think there, that everyone you know who is complaining about this is missing a couple of things. One is that putting all of these movies on streaming simultaneously really does 
open up opportunities for people to see these sorts of things, um, who, people who might not have been able to see them. Um, it makes it less expensive. Uh, it makes it much more accessible. I mean, it's not just the financial cost of going to see the movies, the babysitter, the parking, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's also the time. And a lot of people just don't have the basically four hours that it takes to leave the house, go park, go wait for the trailers, stand in line, the whole thing, and see a movie. Um, and this means that more people are going to be able to see those things at least more quickly. The other thing, though, is these are not non-theatrical releases. These movies are all going to be released in theaters. And fans who want to see these movies in theaters are going to have that opportunity. No one who doesn't want to see this movie, in a, who, who wants to see this movie in a theater, is going to be prohibited unless their state governor says your movie theater is closed. Yeah, but the problem with that is that the theatrical model does not work. And you know this. I mean, you know, you understand that the theatrical model as it exists, frankly, uh, for the last, you know, hundred or so years does not work without that sort of window. I think um, it does not. That model you cannot, no, you cannot not going to work. Uh, hold on. Here. Hold on. I, I let you, I let you have your, your say. The, the, the problem is the, the, uh, the, the theatrical model does not work because if you give people the option of watching something at home immediately or going to the theater and seeing it, even if even those even folks who, you know, appreciate the theatrical experience and even folks who like IMAX and Dolby or whatever, you know, most of them are still just going to end up watching it at home for reasons of convenience. Convenience is a huge most, factor. It's one hundred. It is. I, I bet it's close to 80 percent. I bet if you took I bet if you took uh, 100 people who were going to go see something in the theater and said, well, you know what, you can actually watch this at home for less money uh, right now from the comfort of your couch. Eighty percent of those people would stay at home. And because I'm a lunatic, I actually went and checked. And to replicate the box office of The Dark Knight Rises, you would need 72,124,178 month, like months of individual HBO Max subscriptions. That's a lot. Um, and that, I mean, that's more than an entire month of the streaming services revenue based on the number of subscribers they have now. And I think one thing that will be, we're all talking about this as if, it's guaranteed to work. And I think a really interesting question over the next year will be how many subscriptions does this actually yeah. drive? And then what happens to the movies on the um, Warner slate that are released in theaters later in the year? I mean, In the Heights is coming out on June 18th. That could be a time when a lot of people have vaccines when people are, you know, the kids are out of school for the summer. It's a Lin-Manuel Miranda musical. Maybe it becomes a family movie thing. Um, you know, June comes out in October. Um, uh, the Matrix 4 comes out on December 22nd, um, by which point I think most Americans who want vaccines will probably be able to get them. Movies like King Richard, which is about um, the Williams sister's father and then Judas and the Black Messiah, um, seem likely to be scheduled as late year Oscar bait. And those are movies that could both be real lures for people who are desperate for a date night or frankly could be causes of the way that we've seen, you know, with some of Ryan Coogler's movies. Um, and so it will be really interesting to see if Warner's Gamble that this is going to drive a lot of permanent subscriptions to HBO Max actually works. Because one of the things that we've seen a lot during the pandemic is that people have added new streaming subscriptions, but they've dropped others. There's been a lot of churn. And so if we see a situation where, 
you know, people subscribe for a month because they want to watch two Warner's movies, but then drop the service because actually they're not in, that into Dune. And maybe, you know, Dune was a crazy proposition as a $200 million movie anyway, but I digress. Um, you know, it's not for sure that this is going to work out. <laughs> and so I think that before we declare, you know, movies murdered, theatrical movie going murdered by Warner Brothers, um, Next year is going to provide a lot of interesting data. I certainly think it's true that it's not guaranteed to work. Um, this is a one-year experiment. Uh, Warner Brothers CEO, uh, Warner Media CEO Jason Keeler is is saying we're doing this for a year, and he is very uh, clearly not commenting on what 2022 will hold. And so they may reverse themselves, and they may find that this is a a pandemic plan that is temporary and nothing else. Um, but they also may find that this is something they want to continue. And I just think that, you know, sort of with competition from Netflix, with the advances in home theater design, um, in any case, even without a pandemic, we were going to inch, not run towards, but inch ever towards uh, more day and date type simultaneous releases, more options for consumers, uh, more choice for people who want to watch this stuff at home, right? There's when there is demand for for that, someone will try to figure out how to provide it. That's what Netflix has done. And Netflix has messed up the industry in a bunch of ways. Um, uh, and people are trying to figure out what to do about that. And a lot of the kind of Disney plus, you know, HBO Max, Hulu world of things is a response to the fact that Netflix has been so successful at giving people something that they clearly want, which is the option to see a lot of original content. Uh, from the comfort of their own home and not have to leave and just pay a monthly subscription price for that. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be an interesting experiment. I absolutely think there are downsides. I love seeing movies in theaters. I suspect that uh, whether this works or not, one result of this sort of experimentation, and it's not just Warner Brothers doing this, to be clear, Disney is also moving in this direction, just not quite as um, not quite as aggressively. All right. They're put, but they are putting a number of their uh, big budget films on uh, Disney Plus. They're investing very, very heavily just in Disney Plus content, probably at the expense of uh, theatrical at this point. Um, so it's not just Warner Brothers. I think this experiment is going to tell us something interesting. I think it's going to move the ball forward. And I think it was inevitable that at some point um, you were just going to start to see studios and producers and people who have money on the line here, not just the kind of artistic power, but people who have who have financial power say, look, there's very clearly a demand to watch this stuff at home. Let's provide. We have the technology to do that. Let's provide it to people. Until until then, though, WB uh, and AT&T have a real headache on their hands PR wise because they have a series of directors coming out and saying, hey, you know, this is messed up. You shouldn't have done this to us. Here is I'm going to suggest a course of action they could take um, and that we might see them take. Allow me to offer the following as a way of mitigating some of this. What if they were to talk to, um, say, uh, a director who has some experience in the world of PR and advocacy, who uh, has championed, let's say, African-American filmmakers and says, you know, and Warner Brothers goes to this person and says, hey, what if, what if we came up with a nice slate of movies that, uh, you know, maybe are a little bit cheaper? We can we could we can get them out there straight to people. And we say, no, look, these these, you know, these old directors, they don't know what they're talking about. We can we can create more diversity. Uh, there's a big opportunity for 
uh, Warner Brothers to reach out to somebody like Ava DuVernay, is what I'm saying, and to say, hey, what if we sponsor African-American directors who haven't gotten a chance? Maybe, although I think Netflix has kind of beaten them to that. I mean, they had, you know, she's been in business with them. Um, they gave that mega deal to Kenny Barris that didn't really work. But even so, we got Shonda Rhimes locked up. Um, Do we have any numbers on the small axe films, uh, how they have done? Not not yet. Many numbers think. as we have on all the yeah. other streaming products. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also think it would look pretty cynical if Warners did that. Um, wait, wait, wait. Which, wait, you know, wait, wait, I mean, wait, it's Hollywood. I know, I know, I know, I know. I know. Cynical? A big corporation uh, making a cynical diversity I'm, play, Alyssa? I'm are you saying, I'm saying that I think this cynical diversity play would be less effective than many other cynical diversity plays. Um, I don't know. I just think I, I'm like... I'm... Also, I mean, frankly, Sunny, do you think, you know, black filmmakers can just be shunted aside to streaming services and, you know, locked out of the theatrical experience? No, I mean, I think that I think that would be the the obvious rejoinder. I'm just, I, yeah. I, I just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to spitball uh, ideas for how Warner Brothers could worm their way out of this. And that, so let's that... talk about Alyssa's actual, like the phrase you used there, shunted aside. I think that's certainly how some people are going to see this. And that's how Nolan and VNU feel about their film that they've just been sort of unceremoniously dumped onto it into a streaming world that you know it's the people are going to be seeing these things on phones on on laptops on small screens that they don't control you know like critics have been all year during the pandemic that's another story um but the idea that that these films are being shunted aside i think is in some ways it's at least not proven to me and so we have um in just to kind of uh talk about something that all three of us have a different experience of is that all three of us have worked at publications that have web-only stuff and pr and stuff that also goes in a print edition. Um, and th there's there's like always a divide there between things that go into prints and things that go into web. And like, it is certainly the case, I have heard at other publications, I'll say, that sometimes authors think they're going to go into prints and then find out they're going on web and they get a little bit upset and they would, they would have preferred to go into the print edition because it is seen as more prestigious. But guess what? When you are online, the dot-com version often ends up being the thing that far, far, far more people end up seeing. And I think that that is something that is, that is at least a possibility here. Obviously, we haven't run one of these experiments. We're still early days. But the, there is a real possibility that, that films that end up going direct to streaming are going to have much bigger audiences, even if the viewing experience isn't exactly what Christopher Nolan wants. But I think that these filmmakers believe that the experience of seeing something theatrically is so fundamentally different that they're not substitute goods. I mean, I trust me, as someone who works in the Washington Post opinion section that has an incredibly limited amount of print space, you know, people talk about the web print divide all the time. But the experience, I mean, text is text, right? It's not, I mean, you know, the text that we print in the paper and the text that runs only on the website um, at least for stuff that's not augmented by multimedia, is fundamentally the same. And there are a lot of people who really prefer the experience of reading in, in print. You get uh, better art. You know, the, you, some people might argue, uh, right? Or certainly, it's different. It's it is a different experience. And and I think, I'm saying yeah, I, I agree I think, that text is text, but I think that a lot of people could say image is image, and Christopher Nolan doesn't see that. And um, magazine feature writers who are used to being, you know, who grew up in the print world, uh, there there is a school of them that sees 
that sees the web as like something in some ways inferior or at least kind of a, you know, this is a new, not quite a fad, but a thing for the kids these days. They don't, you know, it's not for me. I'm a writer for print and it is a different thing, a different reading experience. You focus on it. You pay attention. The whole thing. I mean, it's really a very similar sort of debate here, I think. I think the directors have a better argument, but granted. Uh, but but there's there's a secondary. We're we're running long in this segment, but I think it's really interesting. There's a, there's a secondary element here, which is that stuff that is in print winds up on the web anyway, which is also true of the theatrical uh, yeah. releases, right? Uh, you know, Dune was going to be in theaters, and then it was going to be uh, on HBO Max three months later anyway. So people would be able to see it on HBO Max, just not right away. They would have and to. And it comes out on Blu-ray this week, and probably movie. will be seen by far more people in the United States on small screens uh, than it. You're was. talking about Tenet. Tenet, yes. About Tenet comes out on you know, um, uh, on Disney. Tenet comes yeah. out this week. Right. right. And no, but right. I, it's probably going to be seen by far more people agreed. on small screens. Agreed. Agreed. But but the point is that the the superior option is there, and this it's the same thing with magazines, right? In in uh, in in um, I oh, uh, for instance, I wrote I wrote a cover option is still going to be there for Dune. I wrote it. I wrote a cover not talking about but, releasing but it Dune, will, but it will not. But it will not always be there if you destroy if you destroy the theatrical window. Theaters cannot exist. The business model does not work there because are, people won't go. There are very enough people in theaters, uh, uh, as you know, working for an online only publication, Sonny. Have they come just, from the Weekly Standard, which no longer exists? The you know online why? publication, where yes, a bunch of other reasons, but the you know, online, the world of of the internet uh, means that print publications are struggling to stay alive as print publications. Yes, and that is exactly what is happening to theater. That is exactly what will happen to theaters. I mean, that's the same thing. It's the same. It's the same exact thing. I think that what we that that yes. Uh, uh, the effects are very similar, and what we're going to see is fewer print publications, not zero, and fewer movie theaters, not zero. Yeah, you'll have you'll have theaters in New York City and Los Angeles, and the people who live in you know Missouri and North Dakota will uh, have to watch the movies over their terrible. We'll have to watch things broadband. on their ninety-inch OLEDs at home with their seven-point-one Atmos surround systems that are better yeah. than the theater that I watched a lot of movies uh, in as a kid. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, that's that's enough of this, that's enough of this nonsense. Um, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a controversy that directors are speaking up against Warner Brothers' decision to move its entire slate to streaming? Peter's wrongness is a controversy. The <laughs> correctness of the directors is a controversy. Our argument here is uh, proof that it is a controversy. And look, um, I love seeing movies in the theater. Uh, I I. I don't want that to go away completely, but I think that change is upon us and we should be thinking about what that's going to mean rather than just saying, I wish it was 2019 again and that we could hold in 2019 for forever. Uh, it's it's definitely a, it, this whole thing is a controversy. Everything about this is a controversy, including Peter's terrible opinions, maybe especially Peter's terrible uh, opinions. All right. Um, if, just as a reminder, if you enjoy the show and who doesn't, it's a great show. Everyone loves it, demanded it. We it come back and we, we brought it back. Uh, make sure you head over to atma.thebulwark.com. We will have a special bonus members only episode about the move to streaming. More of that. Uh, Peter will explain why our concept of a blockbuster will look very different in the coming years. Uh, he had a piece in the New York Times. We're going to talk about that. It's good piece, even though he's very wrong about that and many, many other things. But uh, go to the Bulwark Plus. We'll set you up with a, a membership you get to listen. Watching movies at home while drinking a Negroni. Good. 
a poison, a poison cocktail, as we've seen. Uh, all right. And now on to the main event. Sound of Metal was supposed to be in theaters, but it got picked up by Amazon and is streaming now on Prime instead. Uh, in theory, it's the sort of movie that seems built for our streaming future, right? It's smaller in scale. It's more intimate in nature. It's the type of film that we're told will thrive in a home first theater never or theater rarely or theater limited uh, setting. In practice, Seeing this at home, for most people, we'll get to your fancy setup here in a second, uh, Peter Suderman, but for most people, uh, it is not going to be what you would hope for. In fact, it could be kind of a disaster. At the very least, it will be deeply unfil unfulfilling, because here is what you miss when you watch at home, enveloping, encompassing sound. And this is a movie in which sound design matters a lot. Riz Ahmed plays a drummer for a metal band named Ruben. And after a show one day, he realizes he lost much of his hearing. A doctor tells him not to play again, lest he risk losing the rest. Advice he promptly ignores. He goes deaf. Uh, his girlfriend and bandmate Lulu, played by Olivia Cook, sets him up with a sort of halfway house for the deaf, combination rehab center and educational outpost. He has to learn how to be deaf, you see, sign language and all that, sure. But also just coming to grips with the fact that things have changed for him forever, and there's no getting around that. He has to learn to live with this, uh, and, and much of the movie is about that struggle. In order to understand what Ruben is going through and his later futile efforts to return to normalcy, spoilers, there's going to be some spoilery talk in this, I'm sure, uh, you really have to experience it, and the only way to really experience it is in true surround sound, the sort that you can either spend uh, many hundreds or several thousands of dollars on at home to simulate, or uh, you can spend $10 on a ticket to experience it in a theater. You need to hear properly how muffled it is when he first loses the sound, and then later how metallic it is once he gets some hearing devices to help him hear again. Uh, the title here refers less to a genre of music than it does to something else entirely, as it turns out. Um, you you really, to I feel like to properly appreciate this film, you really need to get itchy with frustration at just what Ruben has lost. Peter... You have a very good sound system at home. I joke about your CRT TV and all that stuff, but you actually have a very nice home theater setup. How was your viewing and, and more importantly, listening experience? The sound design in this movie is incredible and it just draws attention to how important sound design is in movies. Um, not just the qualities of the sound, but the layout. Um, and this movie just sort of puts you in the middle of Ruben's sonic world in a way that is really pretty remarkable um and yeah so i have uh so i have a seven channel surround sound system in my basement um that i cobbled together over uh the last year or two um and you know i've always been sort of a surround sound guy i had like a a, a cheap 5.1 system even in my college dorm room in like 2000 um just you know because that's a thing that i really care about but the sort of flip side of that is that because i am someone who cares a lot about audio and who sort of lives through my ears in many ways i found this movie absolutely nerve-wracking to watch this was painful as death is not the right word but really kind of anxiety inducing because the thing I think that I, I don't know if it's the thing I fear most, but a thing that I plausibly fear in my own life, a whole lot is losing my hearing. And I've had uh, small moments where like my hearing has gone out of whack. It turned out not to be anything permanent. Um, but uh, where like 
everything sounded wrong for for a couple of months and it was really disorienting and it was really kind of incredible how effectively this movie reproduced that effect um and how just how intelligent and thoughtful the sound design in a movie that isn't like a big budget big production movie right you don't think of this as like oh this is a film that's really technologically savvy and yet it's a movie about that uses the technology of film to show us not just what people hear, but how and why it's important. Um, and it's it's a really, really well-made movie. I will say that there were it was it was not always easy for me to watch, um, but really well-made film, uh, quite affecting. And the third act is is actually something we should probably talk about just a little bit uh, because it's a big departure from the rest of the film in a lot of ways. Uh, and it does a really nice job of kind of showing you, first of all, the the digital glitchiness of uh, spoiler he ends up getting um, he ends up getting a, an, a cochlear implant and those things are um, uh, controversial in the deaf community um, because they seem to sort of work from the premise that being deaf is a handicap and there is a a part of the the deaf community that thinks no it's not a handicap it's just how we are and we're going to live with it and we're and we think that that's that's a, a perfectly good way to be um, but then when he gets this implant it's not um it's not a uh, it doesn't reproduce sound exactly the way that ears do right it 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 uses a bunch of digital technology and you're get and so you said it sounded metallic but if you but I, I think that the way I would describe it is that it sounds glitchy it sounds there's all this sort of digital noise in it as the as the um, the computer basically inside the microphones that are attached to his head is trying to decode the signal and then translate it into something that fakes sound inside his brain. So it's basically just a fast, cochlear yeah. implants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's worth explaining what cochlear implants do. They stimulate the cochlear nerve yeah. in your head and they bypass your ears. Yeah. So they give you the illusion of hearing through your ears when actually you're hearing sound that's being translated directly into your head. Um, and the movie does a good job at both explaining that in a technical way and communicating what it feels yeah, like. Yeah. And I would just say, so um, if you are watching this movie and you do not have a surround sound setup at home, watch it with headphones because headphones are going to give you a like a, a good pair of over-ear headphones are going to give you that sort of really intense, intimate experience um, that this movie was designed to to give viewers, uh, listeners. Um, it's also, it's a very pretty movie. Like I mean, it's kind of, it's very naturalistic in the way that it's shot as well. So we shouldn't underrate the other technical aspects, but um, it's, a, it's a very well-made movie that uh, I, like I said, I, I found unusually difficult to watch. Alyssa. Um, I had an almost reverse or inverse reaction to Peter's, which is that I found this movie sort of surprisingly comforting and touching. Um, I do not have a profound fear of hearing loss, um, but it's a movie about people who are vulnerable in tenuous situations and where everyone behaves with kindness and compassion towards everyone else. Like, I actually don't think there is a single exception to that rule in the movie. Um, you know, we meet Ruben and uh, and Lou when they're on tour. And it's clear, I mean, Ruben is a recovering addict. Lou has some issues with self-harm. And, you know, the instigating, you know, Ruben loses his hearing. And Lou's first concern is to make sure that he's able to stay sober, even if it means sacrificing their tour. And so she behaves in this you know, loving, self-sacrificial way. She gets him 
to this rehab community that's sort of situated within a larger um, set of um, you know deaf institutions, um, including I think a, like a church and a school. And she knows that it's a risk to herself because he has also been helping keep her healthy. There's this like incredibly hilarious domestic scene in the beginning of the movie where these people who you've seen performing in like a really hardcore metal show, this guy who has, you know, please kill me tattooed across his chest is getting up and like making his girlfriend green smoothies and an omelet and like doing all of these, you know, calisthenics and breathing exercises. Um, he puts on a record and it's like an old timey, uh, like, you know, singer jazz uh, type situation. I, I I don't know what the song was, but but it's totally it's right really... too, actually about like a lot of the, the metal world where those folks, like you think they're like, they only listen to sludge metal and in fact, they listen to like a lot of jazz and like classical, <laughs> you know, like stuff. Um, but they're just they want to play sludge metal. And so, you know, Lou, you know, is willing to take a risk with her own health to get Ruben the health that he the help that he needs. He's taken into this community run by Joe, Paul Ratchy, who's also a recovering addict. Um, and you never see the people in this community get impatient or angry with him. Right. Um you know, he is learning how to be deaf. He is not sure that he belongs there. And people are just universally like really kind to him and bring out all of these nurturing, lovely qualities. And then even when he gets the cochlear implant, which really hurts Joe, Joe is sort of firm in enforcing his boundaries. He's like, I have to take care of everyone in this community. Like this is a rebuke to the values that we have here. But he is clearly... He's not cruel about it. He is clearly, you know, sad and worried for Ruben. And then in the third act of the movie, you know, Ruben goes and tracks down Lou. She's living back with her, like, obviously wealthy father in Amsterdam. And it's pretty clear that they're not going to, like, they're not going to get back together as musicians or a couple. And yet everything that happens in that third act, rather than being sort of disastrous, is pretty kind. Like Lou's father sits him down and is like, I was not always sure about you, but thank you for taking such good care of my daughter. Like, welcome to my home. Uh, you know, again, like he reverses, like in the first act, Ruben was the caretaker. Now someone else is you know, making food for him and taking care of him. Um, and when Lou makes it clear that, you know, she is not, she cannot get back together with him and go on the road with him, Ruben lets her go. Um, and I just found the kindness of the movie really beautiful and revitalizing. Um, and so, I mean, it's a movie that, you know, there are threats, there are concerns, you know, you do worry about Ruben falling off the wagon. Um, but it's not a menacing movie. It's a movie where if people do the right thing, things can turn out okay. Um, and I just, I thought it was lovely. Yeah, there's no big blowups in this movie, which is weird for an addiction movie. And in some ways, it really stood in contrast to Hillbilly Elegy, which I know we've talked about a lot on this podcast, but is just sort of notable here because it's another movie about addiction set in the upper Midwest. I don't know exactly where that rehab house in this movie is supposed to be, but they mentioned Dayton, Ohio, right? They uh, talk about being in Missouri at one point. This is an upper Midwest, uh, a movie about addiction in the upper uh, and and recovery in the upper Midwest. And there's not a single scene like the ones you see constantly in Hillbilly Elegy, where people just explode and blow up and go crazy. Instead, there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of difficulty and a lot of hard things to get through. But probably the the scene of most conflict is the one where Joe tells Ruben that he has to leave. And even that, as you said, is a scene in which Joe is trying to wish him off and wish him well. He's just saying the choice you made means you can no longer stay here. 
Yeah. I one thing I really liked uh, about this film is the manner in which it kind of naturally and organically portrays the uppercase D deaf community, right? Like there's so there's there's a big debate uh, as as Alyssa kind of alluded to within the deaf community about, you know, how much if this is a handicap or is it just something that should be lived with? Is it is it et cetera, et cetera. You can read more about it elsewhere. My colleague Jonathan B. Last actually wrote a longish piece about one such uh, conflict at Gallaudet University at the Weekly Standard many years ago. Um, but he uh, but but the, the what the film does, I think, is very interesting. It, you know, it, it kind of throws Ruben into this world of deaf people. And we are like him kind of lost. We're trying to figure out how to understand the people he is around and how to to, to communicate with them. Uh, you know, he's learning sign language. He doesn't understand it at first. But as he comes to learn it, the movie shifts from us being lost to putting subtitles on the screen. Now, this does two things at the same time. One, it allows us to understand as Ruben understands, but two, it creates a sort of separation. Uh, in, in the understanding, it creates separation because it essentially says this is, it's like watching a foreign film now. It is saying you, this, you are an outsider looking into a different community that has its own rules and its own language. It's, own language. it's own, literally it's, its own, own language, its own culture. Um, and it, it, it just is, it's very, it's again, it's very well done. It's very subtle. Um, I don't, I don't like this movie quite as much as you did, Alyssa, but there, there, it has nice little touches throughout. Um, and it's very different from the sort of movie it could have been a movie like the wrestler, right? Where you have a kind of broken down performer, um, trying to figure out how to live in a world in which he can't perform anymore. I mean, that, that is, that's the kind of subtext to all of this is that Ruben cannot do the thing he has spent his life doing anymore he's or at least not in the same way i mean you have the scenes where he's teaching drumming to the kids at the school sure you would get i mean and you get the, in that great little scene he um he's in a classroom and he sees a kid who is you know maybe nine or ten is clearly just really antsy and with the teacher's permission takes him outside and the kid starts tapping on a metal slide and you can see both him and ruben get a sense oh i can experience this through vibration it's different but there's still mm -hmm. something there. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, this is also just, I think, a really lovely actorly movie. Um, you know, Ratchi is not someone who's had a big role before and has this just amazingly open face that matches really well with Ahmed's. I mean, one of the things I love about Ahmed is his face is just, you know, you get the sense that his characters can never conceal what they're feeling. Um, Ratchie is a small enough actor uh, that he does not have a Wikipedia page at all. Yeah, and he's—I mean, it's really yeah, strong. It's phenomenal. Uh, the other—the other person who uh, really jumped out as being excellent. I mean, Rizzo Med's very good, um, yeah. but is uh, Lauren Ridloff as Diane, who is uh, a teacher who mostly seems to be, and it's—it's uh, it's kind of interestingly never super explicitly spelled out exactly what the roles are and how the system works and all of that. Right? It's this almost sort of documentary-like kind of just following him, and we get bits and snippets of the life that he is leading as he is learning to be deaf um, and and learning what that means uh, and how to live that way. Um, but she is a deaf actress. She's apparently going to be playing a deaf superhero in Inhumans um, uh, or, the, the or, Eternals, or the Eternals, right? which I always want to say Inhumans. It's a different thing. Yes, but um, different. in the Eternals. Fake nerd, um, fake nerd boy. Yes. Uh, Peter Suderman here. Can't, uh, no, can't yeah, no, it's totally true. I I actually have no idea. Um, but she's she's so she just generates like such a a remarkable sort of like warmness 
and and goodwill on screen in a way that's so incredibly natural. Um, and yet, like this is an acted movie, right? It's not it's not a no. documentary. It is not just something where they sort of where it's constructed entirely of found footage. And she is she is a performer, like she's an actress, right? Like, and she's just sort of making it seem so perfectly natural and organic in a way that's really rare to see on screen. Well, and the small, I mean, I brought that the sort of actorly quality of the movie up because I wanted to, you know, there's this, one of the things that it does really well is give the characters sort of characteristic gestures. And there's an early scene where um, Ruben's just come to the community and um, Joe is asking him if he wants to use. And there's this really long pause and Ahmed breathes and then closes his eyes for a second, and opens them again and says, today is not a good day. And, you know, it, you can see what it costs him to acknowledge that. And then in the final scene of the movie, he is in Amsterdam. He has left um, Lou in her father's house. And he's sitting in what I think is probably Dom Square. And he's listening to the world through his implants and then takes off the receivers, sort of relaxes into the silence, looks around. And you see him take that deep breath, close his eyes and open them again. And it's the kind of thing that because it's been built into the movie in another important moment, but without a lot of attention being called into it, you understand it again as this sort of moment of acceptance. They don't have to punctuate the end of the movie um, because it gives you a guide to understanding what just that gesture means. Um, I just, I thought, I mean, little things like that just made me feel so impressed by this. Um, and I was going to this not expecting to like it at all and ended up just loving it. Uh, all right. So, what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on the sound uh, or on Sound of Metal? Thumbs up. I don't think I liked it quite as much as Alyssa, though. I do think that the interior of the van that we see is like one of the few spaces that I've ever seen that has the right amount of audio equipment. Like, it's <laughs> so to be clear for it's for folks who haven't seen the movie. There's like six speakers and a huge soundboard and amps and record players and all of this is inside like a a little trailer van situation that they're living in and it's just like oh i looked at that and i was like yes that's <laughs> that is that is how many speakers and how much audio gear a space that size should ideally have thumbs up in part because it had the proper number of speakers but for other reasons too <laughs> uh all right that is it for today's show if you loved it please make sure to check out our members only bonus episode at bulwark plus and make sure to tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences if we don't grow we'll die uh if you didn't love today's episode please complain to me on twitter at sunny bunch i will convince you that it is in fact the best show in your podcast feed yet again see you guys next week yeah.